Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast. My name is Jason Silberstein and I'm a research fellow with the RISE program affiliated with the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And with me today is Adam Ashforth. Adam is a professor in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan and the author of four books. This conversation draws on Adam's wonderfully thick ethnographic research to explore what the education system looks like for the average person in Malawi. We will learn from Adam what most families see as the core purpose of education. Hint, it's not learning. And we will learn just how absent the state is in many schools and how this space is filled by local relationships of accountability. But we'll also explore the limits of those relationships and how narrowly they focus on money, not learning. Throughout, Adam is going to give us the perspective of normal families and communities who are key parts of education systems, but who often get less attention than other actors with more power. So without any further ado, here's Adam Ashforth. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. So Adam, like I mentioned, you and and your co-authors have developed some really deep um, nuanced narratives of how the education system is experienced by uh, rural families and and students in Malawi, um, and I I know this drew in part on an ethnographic archive, the Malawi Journals Project. Um, so I was hoping to start. You could just tell us more about uh, where your source material for for your work in Malawi on education uh, comes from, and, and about the Malawi Journals Project uh, in particular. So the Malawi Journals Project was started by my colleague, friend and co-author Susan Watkins in 1999 as an adjunct to a a big uh, quantitative social networking study that she was um, running on, that was studying the way ideas about HIV pass through social networks. And Susan came up with the idea of asking some of the interviewers on that project to keep diaries, uh, journals of conversations that they participated in um, relating to HIV, broadly speaking, uh, with a view to getting a sense of how ordinary everyday conversations um, work in this context and how ideas about HIV um, can permeate or percolate through communities and social networks. Behind it was the idea that, um, you know, behaviour change, which is necessary in the context of an HIV epidemic, doesn't happen because people are told to change their behaviour, but it happens when people figure out for themselves what they need to do in order to advance their their interests, protect themselves and so on. So she was very interested in, in, in understanding the kind of natural social situations in which conversations pertaining to HIV arose and what people said to each other in these situations. So as I said, she started asking people to keep these journals. And over the years, so it's now more than 20 years, um, a core group of people um, have been keeping journals. They write them down in these little school 
size notebooks, which then get typed up and, and sent to us and then we anonymize them and they're, they're posted on the web in an archive. Um, but the, the fascinating thing about this is that the remit to the journal writers was just broadly anything to do with HIV. But of course, in a context where HIV is, is heavily uh, prevalent, everything is connected to HIV. And uh, one of the things that the journal writers also figured out was that if you have to fill up an 80-page notebook, uh, you need to go into a great deal of detail. Um, you know, if you just summarize a conversation, you, you don't get anywhere. And we paid them by the notebook. So consequently, these journals um, are full of all sorts of interesting stuff that is not specifically about HIV. So for instance, when we started working on this project on education, we started reading the journals, looking for references to schools and schooling. And there are countless stories about teachers and school children and so on. Um, and then one of our journal writers um, was on the on the school management committee at one at the local primary school. And um, she filled up journals with very detailed accounts of you know, the discussions that took place in these these meetings. So consequently, you know, once we started mining this archive for material relating to education, we found all sorts of um, interesting uh, stuff. And particularly, we, we could see the way these discussions emerged, as I said, in, in natural social situations. So, you know, rather than a situation where a researcher comes in and seeks to interview people about issues that are of interest to the researcher. Um, here we were seeing uh, issues and, and ideas uh, and arguments emerging in, as I said, in their kind of natural social social setting. So for our work, um, that formed a kind of foundation and then we did subsequently um, more field work and, and interviews and, and you know, ethnography pertaining to to schooling for that um, that rise project but the archive now consists of about 1200 journals each typed up to about 10 or 15 pages um, and they're anonymized and available publicly so that also provides us with the ability to to reference ethnographic material um, in a you know in a scholarly citational way rather than you know in the traditional anthropological way if i if i heard a conversation i would say you know i heard and saw it and you'd have to take me at my word um but now i can i can cite particular texts and you can go and look at them and and if you're so inclined dispute my interpretation of them right right oh wow what a yeah what a rich uh public resource of of voices that you don't usually get to hear from unless they're filtered, like you're saying, through a, uh, through a researcher. Um, I, you know, what, uh, one question that immediately occurs to me is, is, is there a story, uh, you know, from this archive that you find, uh, you, you keep going back to yourself, uh, that kind of reveals a lot about the education system and, in Malawi, um, you know, one of the aims of this podcast is to start to to tell some of these stories behind the research, so to speak. And so, um, yeah, do you remember any any specific stories? 
Uh, well, there, there's one from the the archive that that comes to mind, uh, and uh, we wrote up a version of it as an appendix in that uh, paper that uh, the working paper for Rise, uh, which is a story about uh, the gift of a, a solar electrical system to a primary school in Malawi. Um, and you know most of well most of Malawi doesn't have electricity and most schools don't have electricity and you know the ordinary person would say oh what a what a good idea to give the gift of electricity that would you know allow light in a few classrooms maybe uh, some electricity in teachers houses to help retain the teachers kids could do their homework in the classroom at night because there's no light in their houses this would be a safe space that they could a solar system, a few panels, an inverter, a couple of batteries, relatively inexpensive, um, and the benefits, enormous. So an international NGO um, concern uh, donated uh, in this district to 11 schools a, um, a solar system. And they, you know, this just arrived, basically. I, I don't know how much pre prior uh, discussion there was but from the school management committee um, you know it just suddenly appeared so then the management committee becomes obsessed with for them the obvious problem which is somebody's going to steal this hmm. uh, so now the management committee says and and our journal writer was on the committee and in in these meetings and so she has discussion and the arguments and so obviously we need to to hire a watchman uh, in order to guard the solar system. Now, that's going to cost money. How are we going to pay the watchman? Well, we're going to have to get money from the community, from the parents, to pay the watchman to guard the electrical system. But hold on, we just asked the parents for money for a watchman and they didn't like it. So we said it was going to be for books, but... In fact, we hired the watchman, and so some of the community are pissed that we, you know, they're constantly asking for money. So anyway, the system works, and it's very nice. A few weeks later, um, apparently one of the, the children at the school was helping push a car that had a flat battery, and in the course of pushing the car, she informed the owners or drivers of the car that there was a battery at the school, <laughs> in the closet, in the in the cupboard in the sixth grade classroom. So um, sure enough, a couple of days later, these guys come with machetes, um, chase away the watchman and steal all the electrical equipment. Um, at the same time, uh, possibly as a result of the... the the money that was being raised to pay for the watchman disappeared as well. So then the committee is convinced that the head teacher has taken advantage of the chaos to steal the money and claim that it was stolen by the thieves and um, you know, make off with it himself because previously he'd borrowed some money from that fund because he claimed his wife needed to go to hospital and he needed transport money to take her to the hospital and was going to pay it back. 
So anyway, the, the details and details and details go on and on and on. Um, but the end of the story is that eventually one of the batteries was found at a illegal drinking den powering the music system. Um, and eventually someone was arrested for the theft, uh, but the electrical equipment never showed up uh, back at the school. Um, and finally the contractor came and took the wires as well. So, you know, the... the the end of the story is that a very good idea, you know, which could be a very good policy to electrify, sets off a whole chain of events um, and you know complications for the people involved in the school and eventually back to no electricity. But I think one of the other things that I would say um, that really jumped out at us um, from both the archive of the journals and also the interviews and discussions that we had concerns the agency of uh, students that, you know, there's a lot of talk about dropouts and and the dropout rate in Malawi is startling, um, you know, from, from 100 students who start in grade one, maybe eight will pass the grade eight um, final exam for primary school. Uh, and there's a lot of talk particularly about keeping girls in school. Um, you know, if only um, there's money put into keeping girls in school. But what we found um, was a very, um, you know, a, a standard story about um, dropping out. That it was the kids themselves, and particularly kids who fail year after year. And, you know, by the time they're 13, 14, and then they're in a class with eight, nine, ten-year-olds, um, and, you know, they've just got the pro- prospect of failing again and again. You know, and the chances of passing that final exam are minimal, that they know it. Uh, and they want to drop out because they want to either go to work somehow um, or help in the gardens farming for the family or get married um, and, you know, have a life instead of just being stuck in school. So I think we were... We were we were very struck by that that um, dimension of agency um, among the kids, and often, you know, often it was against the um, wishes of the parents because the parents have this fantasy that by getting a credential, you know, a school certificate, going on, uh, a kid will be able to get a job, and having a job, they'll be able to look after the parent in their old age, and you know, this is the kind of driving fantasy um, of you know, of the whole school system, really. Um, so what was striking, I think, for us was this degree of agency among among the kids um, and how, you know, dropping out was a solution rather than a, from their point of view, was a solution to a problem um, rather than uh, a problem in and of itself. Right, right. I mean, I think this, this raises the... Uh, one of the insights that I think come, comes out of your work um, so powerfully is that education systems, you know, are not obviously or even mostly about, about teaching kids stuff, you know, and this is one of the big, big points that rise as a research program overall uh, has been trying to make uh, that learning is low in lots of countries because learning is not actually at the, at the center of the education system at all. It's, it's not, um, on the minds of the folks necessarily on the minds of folks running the education system or on the minds of people, you know, in the system, um, um, like you're saying, the, the parents and the students. Um, 
so yeah, can you tell us a bit more about about these kind of local definitions of education or these these local goals of education? And um, and you've already mentioned this, but you know how how those are not necessarily go to school and learn as much as I can. Yeah, uh, you know, schooling is very much about credentials and. You know, if you're lucky enough to pass the eighth grade exam and get a primary school certificate, then that might open the door to a low-level job as a driver or a cleaner or something. So the first thing to know is that jobs, with a capital J, are in very, very short supply in Malawi. Uh, The vast majority of the population makes a living by subsistence agriculture or small-scale trading um, so, you know, for you know, professions, shall we call them, for which education is not needed, um, at least not schooling is not needed, but for any kind of job, a credential is needed and the lowest is the primary school and then, you know, up through university. So schooling is all about credentials. And one of the things that we were interested in looking at was really that question of what use is education is learning in the everyday context. And I'm sad to say it's not much. Uh, for instance, there's not much in the way to read in a Malawian village. Uh, if you have time and inclination and ability to read, you're going to struggle to find a newspaper. Uh, the only book that might exist would be uh, a Bible or possibly a Quran. In, um, and you know, otherwise your skill in reading is going to be pretty much useless um, in the everyday context. Uh, One of the things that we we looked at a bit was the question of whether uh, cell phones might sort of bump up the need for literacy because uh, certainly in Africa, phones and and here uh, are used for texting more than anything else. Um, and it occurred to me that if you know if you needed to be able to read and write in order to send WhatsApp messages, then you know maybe that would be an incentive to learn something at school. Um, uh, but at the point, you know, this was 2017 when we did this research, and although cell phones were around in most of the rural areas, most of the kids didn't actually have access to them. Uh, now, I think it would be interesting to know with the advent of smartphones and, you know, even in the poorest communities, smartphones are becoming ubiquitous. Uh, that would certainly be, you know, a point uh, in learning how to read and write. Um, and similarly with numeracy, um, you know, basic counting is simple enough. Um, once you get past counting, um there are calculators, and you know, it used to amaze me how um, how readily people would um, access a calculator. So you know, you're you're in a shop or a bar, and you buy a, a bottle of Coke. It's 150 kwacha. Two bottles of Coke. They'll probably know that it's 300. Three bottles of Coke. The calculator will come out, and it'll either be you know an old real calculator or a phone and they'll get a 450. Um, So, you know, like even the basic skills of numeracy are kind of superfluous. Um, 
so you know like it's very it's it's difficult to see in that context you know why how issues about the quality of of education and, and learning for the sake of learning of mastering even basic skills you know has that kind of relevance right 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 that's uh that's super interesting and uh <laughs> yeah no i well i certainly use my calculator uh quite a bit as well uh, i feel like you know the education system even uh in the west teaches you lots of these <laughs> skills that you never use again what about the the exams what about the school leaving exams i mean is that not a good enough reason to to learn how to read and write um well that is the, that is the sole reason in fact i would i would say but it it's 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 insufficient as motivation in the sense that you know the the sole reason to pass the exams is to get a job but jobs are so scarce that even people who do pass their exams and, and graduate from secondary school uh, often just sitting around uh, unemployed um, and we also came across a lot of uh, sort of commentary about uh, secondary school graduates who who think they're better than anyone else because they've actually passed the exams but then they don't have a job uh, because there are no jobs and so they're just sitting around either doing nothing or farming like the rest of us so it's a kind of vicious circle in that that sense. Everybody desires the job, but they just aren't there. Um, right. It works for for a few, let's say, but it's really quite a small small number. Right, right, right. It's it's right. It's designed to work for the the elite, but the average, uh, you know, Joe or whoever on the on the street is not is not motivated by that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that did also strike us is that even in a, in a country like Malawi, where public education for, you know, the poor, and the majority of the population is very poor, uh, is, is truly dismal. Uh, but even in that context, there are people who succeed. There are schools that succeed. There are teachers who succeed. There are students who succeed. Um, and that was something that, you know, it's a little bit inspiring to think of, but it's also made us think, you know, like we ought to spend more time trying to figure out, you know, what it is that allows these these people, um, you know, in the most adverse of circumstances to actually thrive or succeed. Um, we, we did a little thing trying to, you know, portray some success stories um, very difficult to imagine how that could be systematized, you know, across a whole school system, um, especially at the level of teachers. You know, so the the standard idea about teachers is that they're either born or made, and the ones that are born are very few and far between, and the ones that are made are just there because they can't get another job. You know, they graduated from secondary school, and you know that's all they can get. Um, but occasionally, you run into these incredibly gifted and um, and dedicated uh, teachers. I, I wrote up a, an account of, of one, a second grade teacher, who was just absolutely amazing in my view. But, you know, that's, you know, he, he was just an amazing character. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't have the imagination to see how that could be kind of systematized across a whole 
school, let alone a, a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean this. This is one of the another of the big questions that I think Rise is concerning itself with. Is is you know. Yeah, what, what do you do with these positive deviants and these really inspiring uh, st- uh, stories that, that you're pointing out? Is that is that something that that you can learn from and then kind of force on the whole system, or is the idea to to actually you know give people enough autonomy in their local context and enough motivation in their local context to to become those folks? And uh, you know, it ha- has to be a little different in each situation and um, mm. at the level of the individual. I mean, you know, what one other aspect of your work that I think relates to this that I wanted to bring in is precisely this, this idea of, you know, what, what role can parents and local communities in particular play in, in a local school? So let me just quickly read this one quote from your study. Uh, it said, our study did not include interviews with high-level functionaries in the ministry because they do not appear in our stories of primary schooling in rural Malawi. Um, I, that just really struck me. I thought that was great. You know, it's like the exact opposite point of almost the entire, uh, you know, aid uh, industry and and most international organizations who, you know, they, they start with the ministry and often they don't get beyond the ministry. And, and you're offering precisely the opposite view, which is that, you know, if you go to an actual school, uh, you know, and, and talk to people who go to that school, the ministry barely shows up. Um, and so... I was hoping you could just talk a bit about, you know, this idea of the state being absent at the local level. And, and does that leave room for, you know, these great individuals to kind of um, uh, potentially, you know, f- fulfill a, a, a larger role in managing and, and governing their own schools? Um, or, or is there a real vacuum or, or what happens when the state is not there? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting issue. Uh, I think in some instances it does off afford um, possibilities, um, and one of the the things that we identify is that there there are really two key figures in the success of a school. Um, one is the head teacher, and the other is the the village chief. Mm-hmm. If you have a chief who is committed and supportive and a head teacher who is um, committed and, and energetic and, and dynamic and, you know, has, has to be a tremendous diplomat, has to be a great uh, administrator, motivator of teachers, you know, like, again, a really remarkable and uh, unusual and rare kind of character. Uh, but when that is the case, then... Uh, then there's possibilities, uh, and the, the possibilities hinge on the ability of the head teacher to mobilise external resources. Because the reality is that, you know, the education department pays teachers salaries, um, often late, and they're pretty minimal in many cases, uh, but not much else. And by the time it's finished paying the salaries, there's not much left over for anything else. Um, the schools that we looked at... Um, at that time had the equivalent of about $1 per student per year for maintenance, construction, supplies, books, whatever. Uh, Not a lot. Uh, And the funds that come from the central government through the ministry um, 
are leaky. You know, they get siphoned off by all sorts of characters along the way. So the schools were, as I said, were ending up with about a dollar, um, which means that then anything that a school wants to do, from buildings to maintenance to books, and uh, has to be raised from the local community or through some other kind of brokerage to NGOs or donors of some some kind or another. Um, now, a, a, a very dynamic and skilled head teacher who can do that uh, can bring resources into the to the school and can really transform it. But um, but sadly, most of them can't. Uh, and again, in this context, the chief is the key figure uh, in the in the community for for managing the relationships between parents and the community in in general. Um, you know, it was it was stunning to us as well the uh, the amount of money that is collected from parents. Uh, you know, technically, education primary education is free, uh, but in reality, it's not. Um, and parents contribute through labour, through you know, making bricks and building classrooms and so on, uh, and also through various kinds of levies, often called development. Chitukuko um, levies. And these are supposed to be voluntary, but then they're usually not. You know, if the kid doesn't pay, if the family doesn't pay, then the kid will will get chased away in most instances and, you know, sent home until the money comes. Uh, and in many families, you know, it's it's a real bur- financial burden um, paying these levies and buying a, a uniform because kids need school uniforms and so on. Uh, so you know, financially, often it's it's a it's a, a dicey issue as to whether the benefits, say, of if the school has a feeding program. Now, the, again, say with the feeding program, the chief can be absolutely essential in that because the chief can mobilise resources uh, from the community to get food for the kids, and so then the then the school becomes a valuable asset for families because they're especially the little kids can can get out of their mother's hair and allow them to go and do the work in the garden and get some food. Um, so that's a value in and of itself, um, you know, and that, that's, that's driven by the chief. But so that, 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 you know, the contributions, I think, of the community and the parents is absolutely crucial. But and another thing that we found, and, and it's a little point tucked in to the, um, to that rise paper, um, you know, so on the one hand, these contributions are not don't figure into the policy discussions about education. Um, you know, in the World Bank report, there's no mention of them at all, and that kind of thing. Mm. But then when we asked around about uh, you know, and and parents complain constantly about these levies um, and complain about having to pay however much they are. Um, but I, you know, kind of uh, mischievously started asking our researchers and then getting them to ask others um, how much people contribute to their churches. This was in a largely Christian area, so the Christian churches. And typically the answer is between five and ten times the amount that they contribute to the schools. But, and nobody complains about the churches constantly seeking money and, like, you know, these bloodsucker churches, you know, always getting my money. And when you ask, what, well, what's the reason? Why do people contribute to the churches so 
freely when they moan and groan about the schools? And the answer is because when you die, if you haven't contributed, nobody from the church will show up for your funeral. <laughs> and the, the funeral is absolutely central in the, you know, the community life. And uh, so you don't dare not make the full contribution to the church for fear of not having them present, singing, you know, the, the choir comes and sings and the preacher will come and minister. Um, so you better make your payment to the church. Um, and as I say, that can be 10 times the amount that the school wants. But uh, Yeah, you pay it. You, no, that's funny. I guess it's pretty clear what uh, what you're getting from the church and maybe it's not so clear what you're getting uh, from the school always, right? That's Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the churches are providing, you know, not just spiritual benefits, um, but, you know, material benefits, particularly in the realm of, of health and healing, uh, for which churches are, are central faith healing and so on. So, you know, they're, they're really considered absolutely central to, to life, whereas the school is a bit peripheral. Right. You know, what, one follow-up question there is you were talking about at this local level, the, the key players in a local school's, you know, success is the head teacher and, and the chief, this, this more traditional chief. But you didn't mention the school committees, which, of course, I, I think this is the great uh, hope of, of um, local involvement and, and developing uh, a voice for families that a lot of the development sector um, kind of has come up with is, is this mechanism of school committees. And I think there's some really interesting work uh, coming out of the political economy of implementation team in, in RISE that's looking at these school committees in other contexts in um, on the continent, uh, particularly in Nigeria, and making a, an interesting point that these are kind of external, artificial, or kind of invented things. Like these school committees aren't organic, naturally occurring things in the, in the system, in the community, in the politics of, of the place. Um, and oftentimes because of that are quite dysfunctional. You know, they're kind of like these, these solar light systems that concern kind of showed up and dropped on the community from your story earlier. Um, they're certainly not something the community asked for. And so I guess, um, no, I'm just curious, what, what is the relationship between these school committees and the chief and the head teacher? Yeah, so the, the committees are interesting. And the one that we know most intimately through our journal writer who was on it um, had the chief on it. And my impression from the work that we did was that where the chief is directly involved in the school committee, um, then they can function quite quite well, quite effectively, because they're essentially a subcommittee of the chief. Uh, and the chief has other groups um, of, of elders and, and community members that he consults with regularly. So this is sort of like, you know, it's called the school management committee, but it's really the chief's sort of subcommittee for the school. Um, and then, you know, that becomes the chief sees the school as you know, as his and him being the representative of the community and so on. And I think, you know, in situations where the chief and the head teacher work well together, then, you know, the committee can 
can function quite effectively. And it's quite interesting, too, in relation to m- money. Mm. You know, m- money is, is, the, is the key issue in all of these things. Uh, and in, I think in any impoverished context, money goes uh, hand in hand with distrust. No, you know, nobody trusts anybody with money. So the committees, their main role is raising money and spending money and keeping an eye on the money and on each other. Uh, and the community can sometimes be very sceptical about the committee, that the committee is is conspiring to steal the money. Um, but in situations where it, you know, it, it can work. It, it can provide a sense of uh, responsibility and accountability and transparency um, in in finances. And one of the things that I found very interesting in our work was the the sorts of the norms surrounding um, what we might call leakage of funds, um, and the the ways in which you know a certain amount of uh, you know what technically might be called misappropriation um, is considered legitimate. Uh, so, for instance, you know if I'm I'm buying iron sheets to to put a roof on the school, and I put the roof on the school, and I, I do the job, but I keep you know a few sheets to put on my house. That's considered legitimate. You know that's it, it's uh, you know it's a reward. It's it's. I think we use the term a brokerage fee, um, you know, an informal brokerage fee. But if I raise money for iron sheets uh, and don't put them on the on the roof of the school and do put them all on my house or just take the money, you know, that's outright theft and, you know, that's totally illegitimate. So these things are always, you know, kind of highly negotiable uh, and constantly negotiated. Uh, but I think it's, it, it is very interesting to look at the sort of norms surrounding accountability in relation to the disbursement of, of funds. Um, so, for instance, getting back to that solar panel thing, the, um, the school committee and the community were far more uh, upset about the possibility that the head teacher had stolen the funds which would have been a paltry amount compared to the value of the solar panels uh, than the solar panels, because the solar panels dropped from the sky and then disappeared. And, you know, however much they were worth, which would have been substantial, um, that wasn't our concern. But, you know, the possibility that the teacher had, head teacher had stolen, you know, a, the equivalent of a few dollars, um, was absolutely enraging. Um, and then what was interesting was the chief in that case, um, you know, the, the committee wanted to take the teacher to the police and, you know, pursue it. And the chief said, no, it's your fault. You shouldn't have trusted him with the money. The committee should have set up a bank account and kept control of the funds, you know. So, you know, don't blame him for stealing it because you put him in the way of temptation and that's that's on you. Um, so, you know, I guess the point I'm, I'm making is that there are these complex norms of accountability that are, are in place and are, are used. Now, they refer primarily and perhaps exclusively to finance, but it seems to me that 
there might be ways in which other dimensions of accountability can be explored in that regard. So, for instance, you know, with with teacher performance, uh, there's not much, we couldn't find much evidence that uh, parents or communities were concerned about quality in the sense of pass rate or you know anything like that but there is so in terms of quality even on pass rate but there is if you know if teachers don't show up at all um if they're drunk uh, you do see community action um often coordinated with and by the the chief um and i i think you know it'd be interesting to think about ways in which those sort of norms of accountability could be expanded to include things like uh, quality, even if it's simply, you know, the pass rate for for the exams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's um, it's so interesting. It seems kind of like this this accountability at the local level is a bit of this double edged sword. Where on the one hand, you're you're pointing out that it's actually quite functional and complex, and you know, there's this efficient corruption, so to speak, that that it allows. Um, in terms of managing finances and, you know, maybe is a lot better form of accountability than a highly centralized, highly systematized system that, you know, relies on the bureaucracy and very, very strict rules and all that inflexibility and, and kind of um, shallowness that comes with that kind of system. This local form of accountability could be a lot more rich and strong and nuanced and everything. But then on the other hand, like you're pointing out, it's, it's, it's only in certain domains of education right now that, that are quite focused on money uh, and, and financing. So I think I want to ask you our final question at this point, which is kind of a, a takeaway element that, that, that um, we have across uh, the podcast. And that is kind of one thing out of everything you've, you've talked about that you wish other people knew about the education system in Malawi, just kind of one insight that that our audience can carry away with them. I, I think it would be what I mentioned a little earlier, that even in such a desperately poor and thoroughly dismal public schooling system, there are glimmers of hope. There are, are people who succeed. There are there are schools that succeed. There are students that succeed. There are some truly gifted teachers, and I think it's important to to remember that uh, because even you know when we look at the system as a whole, it's it's very hard to be anything except extremely pessimistic. Um, but those success stories, I think, are, are, are worth noting and 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 indeed studying uh, and celebrating. Professor Adam Ashford, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and, and sharing your research with us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.